Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Across the entire story of Scripture, God is consistently described as a king. Now that might seem a little strange to us today, typically, or maybe just for me, when we think of kings, we think of castles, we think of knights, we think of things like that. Uh, But in the ancient world, the world where the Bible was written, a world where every nation has one ruler in place with all authority, the, the authors of Scripture use that imagery. It's the best imagery they can come up with to describe what it means that our God has authority over all things. When God establishes His covenant relationship with His people, Israel, it's presented to us in royal terms, terms of a people coming before a king and pledging their allegiance to Him. Later in Psalm 95, uh, the psalm begins with the words you see on the screen. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. God is our King, and therefore, He is worthy of all of our praise. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God as he is in the temple, and as a part of his description and his reaction to that vision, he says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Jesus comes in the New Testament, if you've read it at all, you've noticed that, that if you've read the Gospels at all, you've noticed that some of the most common language that Jesus uses to describe what he is doing in the world is to say that he is bringing the kingdom of God. And you don't have a kingdom unless you have a king. And yet, Although God is king over all, and Scripture consistently uses that image to describe that God is a king who rules over all things, who we should pledge our allegiance to, we find attention. From the very beginning of the story of Scripture, when, when, when God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to tend it, God, although He is king over all, He desires to partner with human beings. Within God's law, as he's establishing things for the nation of Israel, we get a description of what it will be like when God appoints a king to lead over his people. A king over God's people was intended to look vastly different from how kings looked anywhere else in the world around the nation of Israel. And Moses lines out some of those requirements for what a king would do and be in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And he begins by describing... Uh, things that a king is not supposed to do. And then he moves on and describes what they are supposed to do. And in uh, verses 18 to 20, he says the words you can see on the screen. He says, when he, when the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, of all the first five books of the Old Testament, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God. And follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time 
over his kingdom in Israel. God is king over all, and yet God invites human beings in to share in that authority, to be a part of his rule, to, be, to serve as kings underneath the authority of that ultimate king, the Lord. And yet that tension remains. God's vision of kingship looks like Deuteronomy 17, which we just read, and yet there's a tension between that view of kingship and a worldly view of kingship. The, the, the first view, God's view of kingship, says that, that there may be a human reigning over a people who has that title of king, but they are only king because they submit to the ultimate king, to God. And the other view, the view found everywhere else in the ancient world, is that the king is king, period. Doing whatever they want, however they want. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the prophet Samuel is, is getting near the end of his life, and the people of Israel look around and realize Samuel's not going to be around forever. And so they decide to try to fill that leadership void by getting a king and putting a king in place. So they come to Samuel, 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5, the elders of the nation come to him. You can see on the screen, they said to him, you are old, which I'm sure he appreciated, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. The Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king. Instead of trusting in God's vision of kingship, God's vision of, of leadership, where he was the ultimate king, appointing leaders to serve underneath his authority, the people of Israel desire a king like the other nations, like, like a kid begging for a new toy, a toy just like the toy that the kid down the street got last week. And God warns his people, as, as 1 Samuel 8 continues, that a king like all the other nations is going to make life worse. It's going to lead to their oppression as opposed to their flourishing. And the people don't listen. And on that note, the, the period of the monarchy in Israel begins. With this ideal hovering over everything of God's vision for what kingship is supposed to be, and yet it's never fully realized as the people resort to the reality of this worldly view of kingship, giving the king all the authority, and that becomes the norm more and more as the history of Israel progresses. And, and that tension between God's view of kingship and the world's view of kingship does not end because we've invented democracy. None of us may be heads of state, none of us no one in this room might claim that they are directly descended from deity like the kings of the ancient world outside of Israel would have done. But we still find that tension in ourselves. Do we live day to day as if God is the ultimate authority, the final authority over all things, or do we live as if we are? Is God the one ruling the entire universe at every moment, inviting us in to be a part of his rule and reign, or are we each the ruler of our own little kingdoms, scratching and clawing to get every little thing that we can in this world because it all depends on us and on no one else? 
The passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at this morning is a story where these two competing ideas of kingship come into conflict. In the first half of this chapter, we're going to see King Ahab. We've seen a lot throughout this series that we have been in, and he is operating under the assumption that he is the king and no one else is. He can do whatever he wants. He's accountable to no one. And in the second half of the chapter, we have Elijah show up, a man like us. And he stands before the king to deliver the truth that King Ahab is not the ultimate authority. God is. And therefore, when Ahab, just like you or me, act as if he is accountable to no one, it only creates problems for himself and for those around him. So let's read the first half of this chapter. We're going to read 1 Kings 21, verses 1 to 16. The words will be on the screen. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a, a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He, Ahab, lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard. Or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Uh, but seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who, who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and, and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him out the, outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. If you remember back to uh, last week in 1 Kings chapter 20, we saw that Nahab showed himself Ahab, what did, I think I said the wrong name there, King Ahab, excuse me, showed himself to be a pretty savvy negotiator. Uh, but the problem with his negotiations was that he was negotiating in a way that God had not commanded him to do. 
He was using the victory God had given him to advance his own cause, as opposed to recognizing that his victory came from God. Ahab had military victory. Military victory that he had been told he would receive as a clear demonstration that God and God alone is the ruler of the universe. And in response to that victory, Ahab immediately turns to looking at how it can advance his own cause. Our world says that when things are good, when good things come our way, we should leverage it for ourselves. We should use the race to get all new stuff or, or more stuff or whatever it might be. And the ways of God call us to use what we have been given to serve others as God uses us for His glory. But instead, that, that mindset, that worldly view of kingship, that, that thinking that the king is king alone motivates Ahab. It was motivating him last week in chapter 20. It's motivating him in this story in chapter 21. From a business perspective, if we can think of it purely in those terms, this chapter begins simple enough. Ahab sees a piece of ground right next to his that he likes. He goes to the owner. He makes him an offer he says, I'll give you another piece of ground in exchange for this one if you'd like, or, or if you don't want to do that, just name your price, and I'll sell it. I'll buy it off of you. Everything seems to be simple enough, but, but Naboth refuses. And this isn't just a negotiating tactic. If you have a Bible open in front of you, you can see there in verse 3, Naboth says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. This is not Naboth saying, I, I know I've got a good piece of ground here, and so uh, I'm just I'm going to refuse the first offer. You better raise your price quite a bit if you, wanna, if you want, truly want this piece of ground. This is, it would be a sin against God for me to sell you this vineyard. And those two visions of kingship confront one another. Ahab might be a good negotiator, He's just not much of a student of God's law. When you think that the king alone is king, and you are that king, you don't have space for God's law in your life. I mean, I mean, there's battles to win, there's lands to conquer, there's people to rule over, there's no time to read the Bible. But if you remember back to that passage from Deuteronomy 17, I read at the beginning of the sermon, that the king of Israel was supposed to read God's law all the days of his life so that he may follow what it says, not considering himself better than anyone else, but ruling in light of the ways of God. And if Ahab had done that, he might have understood why Naboth reacts in the way that he does in this passage. Because when God gave the promised land to the nation of Israel, he did so by families. The Israelites did not move in and buy up the territory for themselves. And in Leviticus 25, 23, God says, The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. The land was God's. God had given that land, He had entrusted it to each family of His people as a physical demonstration of His covenant with them. Every family in Israel could look at this land that they had, that, that God had given them to care for and to tend and to know that not only did God love Israel, not only did God love the entire nation, but God loved them specifically. And they had been invited in as a part of this covenant relationship to care for this ground that God had given them. 
That's what Naboth is defending. That's the vision Naboth has when he refuses to sell this vineyard. He's not just a good businessman. It's not even a matter of just sentimental attachment to the family farm. It's, it's a matter of obeying the commands of God. The land's not Naboth's to sell. It's God's. God has entrusted it to Naboth and to his family. So Ahab goes away from this interaction, sullen and angry is how the NIV describes how Ahab is feeling in that moment, like a spoiled kid who's mad that he didn't get everything he wanted for Christmas. And if that phrase, sullen and angry, sounds familiar at all, it might be because Ahab is described in the exact same way at the end of chapter 20 in the passage we looked at last week, another place where the commands of God run up against his desires. This reality that God, not Ahab, is the true king over Israel is not a reality Ahab enjoys. He wants to do what he wants to do and doesn't like the fact that God has the audacity to want to stand in his way. And that's when Jezebel enters the story. Now remember, uh, we've talked er earlier throughout this series, Jezebel is not from Israel. Her entire conception of what it means to be a king is this idea that a king is for all intents and purposes divine, able to do whatever they please, regardless of how that might affect anyone else around them. So she gets Ahab out of his pouting by hatching this scheme, to have Naboth wrongfully accused of cursing God and the king, with the result that he is put to death. And with Naboth out of the picture, Ahab can have what he wants. And that part of the story might not seem as significant to us today as it would have seemed to the original readers of this story because we live in a society where our laws are considered higher than our leaders. Our constitution operates under the assumption that no one, no matter what position they occupy, is above the law. So if one of our leaders was guilty of something like this, we would fully expect them to be held accountable. And yet in the ancient world, a world where where the assumption is that the king is king and no one else, this is business as usual. Uh, the king gets what the king wants, and if anyone has the nerve to stand in the king's way, they risk losing their life. If we were an average person living in the ancient world, we might expect the story to end at verse 16. We might expect things to end at this point in the story. The king gets what the king wants, even when they're corrupt, even when, when they use unsavory means to get what they want, but there's not really anything anyone can do about it to stand in their way. That's the way business is done when we operate under the assumption that the king is king and no one else. But try as he might, Ahab does not live in a world where he is the final authority. He lives in a world where God is king. And in the second half of this chapter, he's confronted by Elijah with that reality. We pick up in verse 17 and read the rest of the chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy, 
I have found you, he, Elijah, answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house and the days of his son. Like I already mentioned, if, if Ahab lived in a world where he alone was the final authority over all things, this part of the story never happens. Sure, some people might not be happy, but no one would really be able to do anything about it. But because Ahab lives in a world where God is king, even Ahab is accountable to him. So Elijah shows up, announces that he will face the consequences of his actions. Just as he was going to be held accountable for neglecting God's command in chapter 20. Just like those kings of Israel who ruled before him, who thought their line would reign forever and ever until they were taken down by a different king who then thought that their line would rule forever, Ahab's line will meet the same end. Not for the reasons historians typically give when a government falls, you know, the economy was bad or, or you know, people in power got lazy and corrupt and things like that and the people were uneasy and were ready for revolt. For reasons that only make sense when we recognize that we live in a world where God is king, neglect of God's commands leads to destruction. That's the reality Ahab presents when he shows up at Naboth's vineyard. Ahab and Jezebel have sinned. They've led God's people to sin as well, and therefore they will be destroyed. Their corpses and the corpses of their descendants will be consumed by wild animals, meaning they and their entire family line will not receive the honor of a decent funeral and burial. I mean, just think about how low of an opinion you would have to have of someone if as soon as they passed, you threw their body out in a ditch and forgot about them. This is the reality of living in a world where God is king, even today. Things are not decided by who's the biggest and the strongest, who has the deepest pockets and can afford the best lawyers to get them out of whatever mess they create for themselves. We live in a world where God is king, which means that we live in a world that has justice. Even if that justice doesn't come about on the timelines that we might want or expect. And it's for that reason that the New Testament can include passages like Romans 12, verses 19 and 20, where Paul calls us not to seek revenge for ourselves, but to trust in the justice of God. 
knowing that he is a perfect judge. In the midst of a world of injustice, in the midst of a world with people like King Ahab who assume that they are the king alone and can do whatever they want and no one's going to do anything about it, we can know that our God is still king and our God will deal with wrongdoing. And when Ahab gets this news, he's not happy, as you might imagine. There's probably not a positive way to take the news that you and your entire family are going to die, but I, or at least I haven't come up with one. But Ahab's emotions are slightly different this time. Instead of at the beginning of the chapter where he's essentially just pouting, now he's in mourning. He puts on sackcloth, the, the traditional attire of grief. He fasts, not because he's angry, but as a recognition of his sin and its consequences. And again, we might expect the story to end right here. Ahab feels bad. God says, too little, too late. Zaps him. We're all happy because the bad guy's been stopped. But then we get verses 28 and 29, the last two verses of this chapter. God recognizes Ahab's repentance and decides to delay punishment. And this is after the comment we got in verses 25 and 26. The, the NIV we're reading from puts it in parentheses as an aside in the midst of the story that Ahab was the worst king to ever lead God's people, fully sold out to do evil, just as bad as the nations who lived in the land, in the promised land before Israel, who God punished for their idolatry. And yet, God relents in his punishment, even at the first hint of repentance. And that piece of the story is the key piece of what it means to say that God is king. God is a king who is gracious. Sin has consequences. We see that clearly in this passage. God does not sweep the wrongdoing of Ahab under the, under the rug, and yet, at the core, God's desire is to show grace. Our God is just. He's the king of all. He deals justly with all. He stands on the side of those without power, those who are oppressed and hurting. He stands against those who use their authority for their own advancement, and yet... God desires restoration and redemption, even for those who do wrong. And I fully realize in saying both of those things, in saying on the one hand that God is gracious and on the other that God is just, that I sound like I might be talking out of both sides of my mouth. I mean, how can we believe that God both punishes sin and forgives sin? Well, we don't have time to unpack all of that this morning, but we get a glimpse at how that can be possible through one character in this story. Just like how Naboth loses his life because of a false accusation, there would come another who was falsely accused. Another who lost his life because those in power saw him as a threat. Jesus was and is the true king of the universe, and yet, when he showed up, those in authority those that God had granted to have temporary authority, those who preferred to act as if they were in charge, as if they were king, as if they could do whatever they want with no consequences, no accountability. They saw him as someone standing in the way of their purposes, and they did not like it, and they put him on the cross. And as he dies like a criminal, our perfect king 
takes on himself the sins of the world. On the cross, he experiences the punishment that we deserve for all the times that we act as if we are king alone. So that instead, we might receive the grace of God. And that is why living with the reality that God is king brings freedom. Trying to live as if we're each the king of our own little kingdom brings ruin on ourselves and on those around us because it is not how we were created to live. We are invited by the king of the universe into relationship. Relationship where we share in his glory, where where we get to rule over what he has entrusted to us for the sake of extending his reign over the world, all because of the grace that he has extended to us in Christ. When we live as if God is king, we find life as we were created to live, because our God is a good king who desires good for his people. He created us for relationship with him. (coughs) Excuse me. He created us for relationship with him. So don't try to find life through being your own king when you were created to flourish underneath the rule of the one king who will never fail. No matter what your attitude is towards God this morning, no matter what the week ahead has in store, go forth today with the knowledge that God is our king. And that truth brings us life. That truth brings us freedom. That truth brings us joy. May you find all of that in living under the the kingship of our good God. Let's pray. God, you are a good king. You rule over all things at all times, and yet you do not rule as a tyrant. You invite us in to share in relationship with you, to share in life with you, life as we were created to live. So we ask for your forgiveness. For when we live as if we are king, for when we try to figure it out on our own, when we rebel against your calling on our life, we ask that you would give us trust in you to know your goodness to us. Even when things are uncertain and it doesn't make sense to us, Remind us that you're good, Father. And that goodness is expressed to us in your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.